0: Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Merry early Christmas. Let's try again. Good morning. Okay, good. Welcome to the fourth Sunday of Advent. We're super glad you're here. If you are an intuitive person, um, what is the theme of this Advent morning? Okay, good job. All right, good job. So we're on the, we're on the same page. And um, I had a thought, and now I'm a little a bit regretting it, but are you willing to go on a tiny little journey with me? what else are you going to say, right? We're going to go on a tiny little journey. It's going to cause you to freak out a little bit. Just settle in, enjoy the ride, and I promise we're going to land the plane well, okay? Can, can we do that together? Okay. Not, we didn't used to have to do this, but now we do. All right. I came across this picture in my Twitter feed a couple weeks ago. This is a group of worship leaders that were invited to the White House, and um, in the White House, there's the White House Office of Faith Initiatives and Neighborhood Partnerships, and they changed the name. But basically, George, uh, President Bush started this uh, during his presidency. President Obama continued it, and now Donald Trump, in his presidency, is doing this so well as well. And they invited all these worship leaders to participate in this one gathering. They have these meetings all the time, and um, and it's 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 interesting because this is a group of apolitical worship leaders. They love God. I mean, they love God. Some of the songs we sing are written by these people. They have this deep. Passionate love for God. And uh, someone in the big bureaucracy saw what they were doing. They invited him to come to the White House. And uh, they, they had a worship service. They did a, a little interaction. And then they got invited into the Oval Office. And I'm like, how did this happen? Because like I, I would imagine it'd be like this here we are sitting at Marine Covenant Church, and someone from the big administrative state calls me up and says, hey, we heard this work, this partnership that you've done with Hamilton. It's so incredible. And we want you to come and, and share your story and, uh, and be a part around other people who are doing these faith, faith initiatives. And I'm like, that's so great. And so our whole staff, we fly out to Washington and uh, we get a tour. And also, before we know it, we're in the Oval Office and we get a bee next to the president. They snap the picture and our intern, Tyler, posts it on faith, social media. And we're like, oh, you're killing us, man, right? Because what happened is these people who are totally apolitical, had this moment, wanted to be about what God was doing, and they just got decimated online. At least in my, like, all of our feeds look a little different, but the people who are in my feed did not appreciate this one bit. And I was a little disheartened because I actually longed to be pretty apolitical. I longed to be about what God is doing, about the things of God, and I could imagine myself trying to wrestle with how and where do you do this dance. So even in the apolitical lane, you get decimated. So what about in the really hard political lane, right? Like right now, everyone knows there's all this conflict, but you have like um, uh, Franklin Graham is kind of like one lane. He's like, listen, we need to support the president. And there's people who are like, yes, all on board with him. A whole group of people are like, what are you doing? And they're freaking out, OK? So that lane doesn't have a, a unanimity. And then before it was cool, there was this whole group of progressive Christians called the Red Redlander Christians. And they've been trying to get people of faith to uh, um, impeach the president for like months now. And everyone's all mad at them or supportive of them. And it's just a normal person from Novato. I'm like, what are we supposed to do? Right? No lane is safe. Every lane is like touching the third rail and is death and destruction. And the more I thought about this, I just realized, I think the problem is that Christians just have a really hard time with power. And in fact, Christians in power kind of have never gotten along. We've always tried to gain it and keep it and be noble with it, which often never works out in the long run, or we're out of it and we want to use any means necessary and all the means don't matter as long as we can maybe be in power one day. To the point, like I started thinking back of all the times when Christians have leveraged their power well or tried to get their means of power well or did it inappropriately, and I came across this picture. Pope Urban II 1095. If you're a college kid and you're like, hey, what do you guys think of Christianity? Everyone goes, this guy right here gave us the biggest black mark of all time. This was the very ordering the first crusades in 1095. Christians leveraging power, wanting to be noble, wanting to do, bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And because we're human beings and because for some reason we've always been so horrible with power, we seem to just miss it over and over and over again. And the reason why I wanted to just kind of walk through this little bit of a journey because the idea of peace is really has all these political connotations to it. And in fact, for 3,000 years, God's people who have lived in a wide variety of contexts and wide variety of situations have longed for God to show up and to bring peace. And around 730 BCE, the prophet Isaiah Gave this prophecy, which people of God have been leaning into for, like I said, for almost 3,000 years. It begins in uh, Isaiah chapter 9. So if you're a Bible, you just turn right into the middle of the Bible. That's pretty close to Isaiah, big chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 6. But if I go back just to verse 2 for one second, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. And there's this picture already from the prophet saying, Listen, I know that we're living in this moment of deep darkness, and that deep darkness can be politically, it can be culturally, it can be personally, it can be just individual, based on you and your moment, but almost all of us have experienced and walked through times of this darkness, and we long for this light, this light of hope to show up. Well, Isaiah just lays this incredible prophecy. I just want to highlight two verses. So in verse six, he says this, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? This passage gets preached many, often during the Advent season. And it's interesting because we love this idea of the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're like, yes. But it's wrapped up in all of this political language. The government will be on his shoulders. Verse 7, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What a beautiful picture. And especially if you're walking in a land of darkness, here's this moment where the prophet is saying, there will be this time when the light comes, there will be this new system, a new system. Now this, this guy right here, this is King Ahaz, he was, king of, uh, he was the king of Judah around 740 BCE. And uh, this is the time in Jewish history where uh, there was a divided kingdom. There was Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and the Assyrians had already come in and wiped out Israel. And the people of Judah looked at Israel and goes, of course they wiped out Israel. Those guys were not following God. They, they had all these weird, lame practices, and God wanted to punish them, and they punished them. And like two brothers who don't get along, they're kind of like, yeah, look at Israel. Those guys are the worst. Well, King Ahaz was the the king of Judah at this time. And you have to understand, this was a time of decadence. At least I would imagine it of, of decadence, right? You had this giant power, the Assyrians, coming in on you. And because of King Ahaz, he was super wise and, and conniving. And he ended up selling all the jewels and all the gold in the temple. And he, and he, and he made up a deal with the Assyrians. And the Assyrians said, hey, we're not going to attack you. And Ahaz like, yes, look at us. We are doing it. We are God's people doing God's thing. We found a way to a, a, um, avert disaster. And it was this time of peace and decadence. And yet it's in this moment where Isaiah is like, um, no. There's going to be a time when the true kingdom of God comes. So there's part of Ahaz's reign um, that's written in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 28. And just listen to this description. So Ahaz, he's 20 years old and he becomes king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. But unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned the sacrifices in the valley of ben Hinnom and he sacrificed his own children in the fire, engaging in the most detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. I mean, what's incredible is, I think if if you went around and talked to Ahaz and you talked to his people, they're like, we're crushing it. God sees us. God honors us. God is protecting us from the Assyrians. We are doing it right. And yet, from a different perspective, Isaiah's perspective is like, oh my goodness, you are missing it. You have this faith that, you, that you, you're, God, you're people of God. You worship Yahweh. You're trying to be the people of God. And yet you've absorbed all of these practices from the people around you, even to the point of child sacrifice, which is the most detestable thing. Right, Christianity, Judaism was like the very first religion. The very first time when human people, when human beings were said to be made in the image of God, had unique dignity, had unique value. In fact, it was like the most incredible testimony to the people around them. And here, King Ahaz is offering his own kids in sacrifices. They're like doing total pagan worship. And it's super easy to judge these guys. And uh, but I think for my own self, I just spent a few minutes thinking about this because honestly, it was more than I could take. But I thought, what if we really are living in this time of decadence, in this time of synchronism, syncretism, sorry, where we have this faith and we love God and we want to know and love Jesus. And yet we've kind of made all these agreements culturally that may not quite fit with our faith. I thought for me personally, the way that I kind of treat my kids as an idol and I live in such fear about them and their future, or the way I think about money and materialism, or the way I think about politics and nationalism. These are mine. You all have your own things. But you think about it, we've made certain agreements by being Marin County people that may or may not totally jive. And even though things are peaceful and and we go, oh, look at this time of decadence and greatness that's happening. The prophet Isaiah says, hmm, maybe not quite yet because there is going to be a time when the sun will come and a new type of system will be put on his shoulders and he will be called Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. And actually, that's where we find our story that it continues because in the very first century in Palestine, that's when Jesus shows up on the scene. And the city in and, and Jerusalem is now in a totally different situation than it was in King Ahaz's day, right? The Romans are ruling. There's Roman rule. There's oppression. Um, the Romans, right, are taxing the people. People are living in fear. There's a whole, there's this pagan culture that's fully infiltrating um, the Jewish culture. And the, the, the God's people are wrestling with how in the world do we engage this, this people, this context? How do we recognize the kingdom of God is coming even though we're now living in a a world of oppression. Okay, so here we are in John chapter 2, and you'll recognize the way that this story goes. But it begins John chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the all the people. For today in the town of David a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Verse 11 again says, "Today in the town of David a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord." And Luke isn't a dummy. He immediately is drawing back to Isaiah chapter 9 and making it clear that Jesus showing up is the fulfillment, the culmination of the longing for God's people for this new kingdom to emerge. I mean, it is a political statement that Jesus would show up in the town of David that he would be the Messiah and the Lord. And to make it clear, it goes on, it says, and there'll be a sign you'll find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger, and then suddenly a company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests." Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Oops, sorry. It's incredible that it's this moment, this humble moment. And yet for all those around, God made it clear that this little baby was unlike any other baby. This little baby deserved all the worship, all the honor, all the praise for this brand new kingdom that was going to be established by his rule. And the angel said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, to all whom God um, extends his favor. And in some of the commentaries I read this week, it's interesting, this idea where it says that, um, that on earth, peace to those, to those whom his favor rests was this really generous, open-hearted posture. Because the people of Israel always knew that God's favor rested on them. They knew that they were God's people, the chosen people, the chosen ones, the chosen place for the kingdom of God to happen. But all of a sudden, Jesus enters the scene and begins a new posture where God's favor, God's peace, God's shalom gets extended to any and all people. doesn't matter your race, your gender, your class, your nationality. It doesn't matter. All those things that divide us do not matter. But Jesus comes and offers us his peace. Now, I think it's fascinating is Jesus shows up into this world where the Romans are oppressing them. And already there's kind of four ways in which God's people were engaged in the Roman Empire. So the first were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were kind of like the elite religious people. And um, they were like the academics, the elite, the Ivy League people. They all knew, they, they had relationships with the government, uh, with the Roman government, and they had relationships uh, with the Jewish people. And so they kind of were the intermediary between these two groups of people. Right? A lot of the Jewish people felt like they were sellouts, but they felt like No, they were doing God's business because if they pushed back on the Romans, the Romans would just crush them and wipe them out. But they wanted to provide temple worship. The temple was the center of worship for the Jewish people. And the the Sadducees wanted to make sure that there was a space for God's people to offer sacrifices, to go through the festivals, to receive atonement. So the Sadducees had to make some agreements with the government. So they found a way to make agreements with the government so they could worship God and make that happen. The Pharisees, right, they went the other way. They said, listen, we don't want anything to do with the government. In fact, the Pharisees were apolitical. And it's interesting that Jesus spends most of his time with the Pharisees because the Pharisees, I think we are in the line of the Pharisees. They genuinely loved God. They genuinely loved God. And they felt like we live under Roman oppression. And the reason why we're under Roman oppression is because we're not living rightly. And if we just live correctly, God is going to honor that and make a way for us to get out. And so they drew these very firm lines, and said, listen, we are going to live in this sort of way. And they lived well. And they loved God, but they did not want anything to do with the government. So those were the Pharisees. And then you have the zealots. And the zealots said, hey, we love God. And we're God's people. And we have history of people where we rise up and we're going to take our swords and our protest signs. And we are going to overthrow the government. And we're going to establish God's kingdom at any means necessary. And for this whole season of Jesus' birth, um, the Zealots, different groupings of Zealots would rise up and try to take over the government. And ultimately, in the year 70 AD, the Romans were like, we've had enough. And they just wiped out all of Jerusalem. And then lastly, there were the Aseans. These are the guys I want to be. They're like the Amish. They're like, listen, we don't get you. We don't get this. We're going to take our best friends, and we're going to go live out in the desert and like sing songs together. I mean, it wasn't quite that much. They like, they, they wrote all the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were incredible scribes, but it was this incredible brotherhood. But they were just like, we cannot deal with that. That's kind of how I want to live. I want to be a hippie, living in a commune, loving God. But you see, those are four totally different ways, totally different postures for God's people to engage this power, this external power, and wanting the kingdom of God so desperately to come. Not for their glory, but they recognize that the kingdom of God coming means that the everlasting God, right, the everlasting Father, sorry, mighty God, wonderful Counselor, and Prince of Peace, that that sort of rule would be present when God's people, when God fully establishes His kingdom. And that's the world that Jesus rolls into. And Jesus did not do very well because Jesus showed up and He didn't pick any of those lanes. He picked a totally different lane that had nothing to do with any of their perceived um, directions. He had this entirely upside down version of the kingdom of God, where blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, right? That we're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to pray for those who persecute us, Right? They're supposed to be generous. If someone strikes us on one side of the face, we, we turn to the, give them the other cheek. We, if someone takes our cloak, we give another cloak. I mean, Jesus went a totally different route. And he began to talk about this new kind of kingdom. And you can see the way the disciples interacted with Jesus. They did not get it. They're, they're like, yeah, 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 you're kind of this weird prophet guy. But right, when are you going to take over Rome? When are you going like, to establish this thing? And we're going to be like your right and left hand guys. And Jesus is always like, oh, you're missing it. You're missing it. I think of the, the way that Jesus engaged the woman at the well in John um, chapter 4, I think is like the perfect picture of, of the ministry of Jesus, that he is this esteemed rabbi he has this legend that he's the son of God and that he is going to bring about this new, um, this new kingdom, this new way in which God was going to show up. And he proves it in every interaction. But the way that he interacts with this woman at the well, he's in Samaria, which the Samaritans and Jewish people had nothing to do with each other. And he shows up and he begins to talk to this woman in the middle of the day. And she's there in the middle of the day because she's had a sword past, And you don't go to the well in the middle of the day. You go in the morning or night because that's where all like, the girls go and they chit chat. They don't go in the middle of the day. So she's there. She doesn't want to talk with anyone. The disciples go away, and Jesus finds himself sitting and talking to this woman. And you can tell by the interaction, like, he, like she's like, you should not be talking to me. And Jesus just leans in every time. He's like, I see you. And he knows her, and he treats her with respect. And he actually gives her one of the most incredible teachings about worship. Anywhere in Scripture, he gives to this woman. And even the disciples come back like, whoa, what are you doing? But in every interaction, Jesus sits and sees her He knows her story. He doesn't judge her. He offers love and grace and acceptance. And you just know if you've ever experienced any of those things, right, all of a sudden you feel at peace. She felt such peace around that that she had to go and tell all of her friends, all the people in the town who all have been judging her for the last 10 years, telling all of them that there's now this person who's told her things about herself that no one else has known and you need to meet him. And all Jesus do is basically extend humanity to extend extreme humanity, to give this poor woman who has no class, no uh, social status, no, no, nothing to benefit him, and gave her some incredible teaching, great, gave her incredible compassion, and changed the, the course of all of human history. And in fact, all the disciples did that, right? Every single disciple um, followed Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as he's modeling, he's our Lord, the Savior, the Messiah. And yet if we are truly going to be followers of Christ, right, Jesus lays down his life, picks up his cross, ultimately dies on the cross for our sins. All the disciples end up dying and being martyred for their faith. And it's interesting because we want comfort so bad and we want peace externally so bad. And yet if we're going to be true followers of Christ, we recognize it's not external realities that bring us peace, but it's being connected to God, being connected to this new kind of kingdom. And Jesus clarifies this in one of my favorite parables. He says the kingdom of God is is like a little tiny mustard seed. It's a little tiny mustard seed, and when it's planted in the ground, it grows into one of the largest bushes. And if I'm honest, I don't want a mustard seed-type faith. I want there to be a really strong man or a really strong woman, a really strong political or powerful or wealthy person who's going to blaze the way for me, and I can sit back and go, yeah, that's my person. But what's wild is that is not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works as a mustard seed, where you individually and me individually experience the love and joy and hope and peace of Christ. And then we extend that to other people. And it's funny because we've been trying so hard for the strong man, the strong woman to save the day. And yet it was Jesus with this ragtag group of disciples who were all martyred in this tiny backward part of the whole world that ended up becoming this giant religion that's in almost every country all over the world that's bringing about God's kingdom in a totally different sort of way. So all this is the way that Jesus works, and ultimately he lives his life. He has these interactions with these people. He teaches a new way to live, a way the new kingdom is going to be, and then he models it, right? And then he ends up suffering, being tried, being executed, and he dies. And at that moment, If you think of all the external chaos that's happening, all of these poor disciples, they put their hope in this this rabbi. They've given up families, they've given up jobs, they've given up careers, and they've put their hope in this rabbi who's now been executed publicly and their political world, their cultural world, their personal world, I mean, is totally in shambles. And then this is where the story goes. In John chapter 20, right after Jesus was executed and at the beginning of his resurrection, he has this interaction. So on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Shalom. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. For as the father has sent me, I am sending you. And during the Advent season, we celebrate peace because it is this incredible gift that God gives to us and is a gift that we get to extend to the whole world. It's true peace for right here, for right now. The disciples who have experienced the bottom of the bottom in every possible way, Jesus shows up and says, Shalom, peace, well-being, integrity, wholeness. And if you're a disciple you're thinking how is any of that possible based on our political and cultural and social and familial and friendship iterations all those things are in chaos and Jesus comes and says no 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 peace. And this is the gift of God that came on Christmas that we as Christians give get to be testimonies to the world because we live in a world that has no peace. Everyone is so anxious. Everyone is so trying to make things right in their world, in their personal world, in their political world. And it just causes more and more and more anxiety. And Jesus says, no, enough. Because the idea is that external things actually do not cause peace. And I actually had to, like, this is an awful way because this is just my dysfunction, but this is how I had to get there. Because I think if I have the the right life, the right house, the right marriage, the right kid, the right job, the right amount of my savings, if all those things are right, then I'll be at peace. And I didn't want to have to, like, be, um, you know, trial and error all that. So I just did some common wisdom and looked around at people around us. And, um, and I came up with the really sad story that many of us know, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley was so handsome. He had such good hips, right? He would change music forever and ever. And he was wealthy. He, was, he had every single thing that he would want, right? But then he died in Graceland, fat and overweight and lonely and just a, a shell of the man. And it's just a good warning for me. All the things that I long for that I think will bring me peace will not bring me peace. And the sooner that we can recognize that those things are entrapments and actually keep us away from peace, the sooner we actually can sit and engage with Christ. Because if you think about this, when have you actually experienced true peace? And it wasn't opening presents on Christmas, at least for me. It wasn't even getting a promotion. It wasn't getting a new thing that I bought. Like, those are all things that felt good in the moment, but true peace. And for me, true peace has been a couple times when I have really been crushed. And someone who I love and who knows, who I love and I know loves me back, has sat down with me and just been present. And despite all my failures and all my challenges, sees me and I can be myself my vulnerable self, my inner self with all my anxiety and all my failures and all the things that rumble up inside of me, they see those things and there's no fear in their eyes. There's no shame in their eyes. There's no like, oh boy, what did I just walk into? Right, there's a leaning in. There's like, oh, I got you. I love you. I'm with you. Right, when we're the most vulnerable and we're the most seen is when we get a little touch of the peace of God. And if that just happens on a human level, imagine the God of the universe who loves humanity. He doesn't love generic humanity, loves individual people, sees you, his precious daughter, his precious son. He sees you and he longs to sit next to you and hear your heart and tell you it's going to be okay. Put his arm around you, tell you he loves you, to be fully seen, to be fully loved, To be fully with someone who actually has the power and the means to to make things better. The peace of God. It's interesting, with all this Christmas season and all the distractions and shopping and things that have been going on, the time I felt the most peace this Christmas was actually on Friday night. Pastor Courtney and Michael did this incredible job. They led a service called Broken Hallelujah. And it's interesting because in the church, you know, it's Christmas and it's beautiful and it's lights and it's celebratory and it's family and it's friends. And it's all these great things. But we also know Christmas is really dark and lonely and opens up kind of these deep, dark wounds that are in many people's lives. And, and unfortunately, in the church, we try to go, Ah, God's good, get over it, and we're going to celebrate together. And like, like some of that's true, but there's something really special. And Courtney's like, OK, let's try this thing out. And she made this space on Friday night for people to come who are grieving who Christmas and the Christmas season actually isn't joy-filled, isn't hope-filled, isn't love-filled, but kind of taps into this like really deep sorrow and made this incredible space. And it was wild to sit with my sisters and brothers who were really wrestling with the depths of grief and loss. A handful of the stories I knew really well and are, I'm just brokenhearted by. Some of the stories I don't even know at all, but I was just brokenhearted by. And yet the fact to sit with them to have the word of God spoken over us, to have the words of affirmation and hope preached to us by Pastor Courtney, peace, shalom. Because the peace of God comes, this new kingdom of God comes when we connect to Christ and we experience his peace. And then the wild thing is we get to express that to the whole world. Jesus reveals that the Prince of Peace has come. The kingdom of God has come. And you, being part of the body of Christ, are expressions of Christ. And you get to be the expression, the revealed expression of God's peace to other people. And so as you experience the peace of Christ, if you sit and listen and love and are present with and see the depths of humanity and grace to the other person, you are participating in the kingdom of God. And scripture says, blessed are the peacemakers. You and I have been tasked with just that. Well, I've been thinking a lot about peace this week, of course, and the Advent candle and the Advent rhythm. And I really think that peace is the culmination of all these other expressions. Because when we recognize that God loves us, he sees us, he's for us, right? We can begin to open up our hearts. We can begin to open the vault for God to have his way with us. And when we can recognize that this moment is not all the moment that we have, but that there's hope. There's hope in the immediate time. There's hope in the future. And we begin to experience the joy of God's goodness and grace and his good news. And our lives begin to be seen on an eternal perspective. We see things the way God sees things, not the way we see things. And we experience God's love and hope and joy. It's then that we get to experience God's peace. And we've been talking about this all Advent season. That peace... It's nothing that we white knuckle. It's nothing we force. It's nothing we try to make happen. But peace is a fruit. It's the result of us being connected to Christ. Like in John 15, verse 5, the vine is connected to the branches. Jesus informs us, equips us, empowers us. And by being connected to Christ, the fruit of peace comes in us, and we then get to reveal that to the world.